Hi everyone, this is Hitha Unnakrishnan for the In Common Podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. In today's episode, Michael and I are talking with Ashish Kothari, an environmentalist who works at the interface between development and environment and focuses particularly on radical alternatives to development discourses. Ashish is a very familiar name to people working in the Indian environmental context as well as those who engage with degrowth, not least because of his strong involvement in grassroots environmental movements in the country. He is one of the founders of Kalpavriksh, a non-profit organization in India which deals with environmental and developmental issues. In addition, he wears many other hats as an academic and a teacher, as a member of international steering committees, such as those of the World Commission on Protected Areas or the Convention on Biodiversity Alliance. He has also worked as a member of several Government of India committees, including those responsible for assessing India's Forest Rights Act and drafting the country's National Wildlife Action Plan and Biodiversity Act. He is also the coordinator of Vikalp Sangam, a platform that brings together organizations and individuals who work on developmental alternatives across India. He is also one of the editors of the book Pluriverse, a post-developmental dictionary. In our conversation today, Ashish reflects upon the influence of his early childhood experiences with environmental activism, particularly protests against the shooting of the great Indian bustard by Saudi Arabian princes and against tree felling in the Delhi Ridge forest upon his engagement with environmental conservation. These experiences were also shared incidentally with one of the former guests on our show, Professor Mahesh Rangarajan. In our conversation, Ashish asks the pertinent question, can wildlife conservation happen at the cost of human rights? We speak about the eternal debate about, of development versus the environment. We speak about the eternal debate of development versus the environment and Ashish's conviction that the idea of development itself is deeply flawed. Instead, he says, what we need are different notions of well-being emerging from different parts of the world serving to replace this idea of development. We spoke about the dangers of viewing community-led action as yet another panacea, but also recognizing the inherent strength present within communities. We talked of moving beyond dichotomies of community versus government and instead looking towards alternatives where we can enable communities to regain their balance in different ways. We spoke about the importance of building and being part of networks that both keep you going but also stand ready to continue in your place. And also how that very act of working together poses further challenges if one were to consider things like identity building, branding or even issues of satisfying personal egos. We ended with a discussion on Ashish's conceptualization of the term eco-swarajya and the challenges associated with misappropriation of culturally or spiritually loaded terms. Michael and I really enjoyed this conversation, especially because of its inherent critique of the ideas of development and community and hope that you find it as illuminating as we did. Ashish, thank you for joining us. And um, yeah, when, like I said, again, when I was when I was reading your articles, I got reminded of something that Mahesh had told us, which is that he was also participating in the same protests that you were participating at uh, against um, the shooting of the Great Indian Bustard and later on the felling of trees uh, in the Delhi Ridge in the 1970s. And I thought I'd begin this um, interview with asking you what led you to that protest really in a sense. So, I mean, I, I gather that you've done your master's um, from Delhi University in sociology and it's quite a trajectory, right? For someone, I mean, when interdisciplinarity as such was something that was not 
that was not so prevalent in the way Indian educational system progressed. It's quite a trajectory for someone to be studying sociology and then uh, moving on into uh, protesting against um, ecological uh, injustices. So I just wanted to ask you what got you interested in what you were doing and um, how did you come to be standing in front of the Saudi embassy? Yeah, sure. No, I uh, actually, I think that so the Saudi embassy demonstration was 1978, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so we were actually in school. Um, this is before I had any inkling I was going to do sociology. Um, so this was high school in Delhi. Uh, there were a number of us who were kind of interested in, I was in particular interested in animal rights issues. And from there, uh, getting into wildlife conservation, wildlife is as an interest, bird watching, etc., was quite a natural step. We had a nature club in the school, and through that, we used to do trips. But also in Delhi itself, there is a very large, uh, I think one of the world's largest urban forests. The last stretch of the Aravali Mountains mm -hmm. uh, is quite uh, well wooded, and so there's a lot of uh, forest and quite a lot of bird life. Used to even be leopards and so on till not so long back. Um, so. All of this was part of uh, what we were, you know, kind of growing up and then in being in high school, we were doing some of these activities of nature walks and bird watching, etc. In 1978, we heard of, uh, there were two things, two incidents I remember. One was this uh, permission that the government of India gave to the Saudi Arabian princes to come and hunt uh, floricans and bustards in Rajasthan. And... Uh, we thought that was pretty uh, ridiculous because they were actually uh, threatened species. They were protected by law. And here was our government giving permission to princes to come and hunt for, for sport. Um, and the second thing was, uh, at that time, Prime Minister Morarji Desai had just about banned the export of rhesus monkeys to the United States and elsewhere. They used to be exported for some of the most horrifying experimentation. Um, and I'd read about that, uh, the, that experimentation in the then Illustrated Weekly of India, uh, one of the best magazines then. And um, it kind of, uh, three, four of us decided that we should go and meet the Prime Minister because uh, there was a lot of pressure on him to restart the export from the US and from other countries. So we actually did go and meet him. It was much easier to meet Prime Ministers at that point in time. And we had uh, the five of us, we met him, we said, uh, we're very happy that you put this ban on exporting visas monkeys, but uh, we hope you won't reopen it. So, of course, Muraji Desai being Muraji Desai, he said, uh, what makes you think I'm going to, you know, uh, reopen it? Of course, I'm not going to reopen it. And how many of you are vegetarians? <laughs> so that was a very interesting uh, conversation we had. Um, that and and the other the the demonstration on in front of the Saudi Arabian embassy where there were I think about 12 13 of us it wasn't a very large demonstration but consider the fact that that was a time when environmental action was actually pretty rare and so we got front page coverage in newspapers and because of that action and also uh, probably more importantly also actions by the Bishnoi community in Rajasthan, which, as uh, you know, has uh, has a history of wildlife protection and protecting ecosystems for could you could you just years. expand a bit on that? Uh, yeah, because... so the Bishnoi, sure. So the Bishnoi community is uh, it's a kind of sect of uh, of Hinduism which 
believes very strongly in Bishnoi means 29. So they have 29 rules by which they live their lives. One of these rules is never to cut a living tree and another one is never to hunt an animal, a wild animal. Um, so because some of the hunting was happening not so far from where they, uh, where they live, uh, they had also been protesting against it. This community, incidentally, is a sort of forerunner of many of the forest protection movements in India and elsewhere. Uh, they, about 300 years back or 350 years back, they protested against tree felling by the king, the then king. He wanted to fell trees to make his palace. Uh, and they protested by hugging the trees. And in hugging the trees, uh, about, uh, I think, 250 or so of the people were killed by the, the soldiers of the king in, uh, in cutting the trees. And uh, this incident, uh, I mean, became obviously the king himself when he heard he was so ashamed that he immediately put a stop to any tree felling. And since then, they actually have been very, very, very uh, fierce in protecting trees and wildlife in their ecosystems. They also became famous more recently because they reported uh, hunting of uh, black buck, um, which uh, by a very famous Indian actor, uh, and they complained against him and the case against him. Anyway, so uh, this, so the two demonstrations kind of happened together. And because of that, the government of India was so embarrassed that they requested princes to please go back. So in fact, no hunting did take place then. Um, anyway, so these were sort of precursor actions that uh, we took. And when this was happening, um, some of us are also part of uh, an international group called the uh, IYF, International Youth Federation for Environment. And uh, also sort of had an informal kind of a grouping um, in the 90, late 1970s up till about 1979. And then in 79, uh, we had also been looking at and being concerned about the destruction of the rich forest, which I mentioned, the Delhi, for, uh, the urban forest in Delhi, for road widening and construction and garbage dumping and army encampments and all kinds of things were happening in the middle of the forest. So we thought that instead of just enjoying ourselves in the forest, we should do something to uh, protest against this kind of destruction and to argue for its protection. And that's why in 1979, we held a demonstration. We actually mobilized a lot of students from different schools and also local residents around the Ridge Forest. And so I think we had about 300 people on a march up to the office of the Lieutenant Governor. Delhi was under the Lieutenant Governor at that point. And we gave him a petition and said that these forests are, are, uh, are the city's lungs. They are crucial for us. They are important for wildlife, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so they must be protected. And that's when we then actually initiated a campaign to save the forest, which lasted about a year before the government itself kind of declared them as protected uh, forests. So yeah, these are the first couple of years of uh, our work. We also got into a lot of environmental education work because we ourselves kind of came out of that kind of uh, activity in schools. So we then took up uh, handling some of the nature clubs or environment clubs in schools. We brought out a, a very amateurish, uh, amateurish uh, newsletter called Nature, nothing to do with the scientific magazine. But uh, first it was called Echoes in the Wild and then uh, Nature. And that was spread in various schools and with students. So these were some of the early activities in the first 
couple of years. And in 1979, after the or around the time the demonstration happened on the Delhi Ridge, we then decided that instead of just a loose uh, formation or group of people, we should make it an organization. And that is when Kalpavich, the organization, was started in 1979. Yeah, um, I will get to Kalpavich uh, in a bit. Um, I was just struck by, struck by this particular incident you mentioned of the Bishnois hugging trees um, in the past. Um, and would you say that that was like a precursor to the Chipko movement that Guha has written about um, so eloquently in Unquiet Woods? And... Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think uh, some of the people who were uh, prominent in the Chipko movement, prominent to the external world, like Sundalal Bahuna and Chandra but have acknowledged that the Bishnoi movement was part of that. Not just Bishnoi movement, but also there were movements to try and save forests in the 1920s and 30s uh, against the British uh, imposition of uh, uh, rules and laws, which uh, included then cutting down of forests in the Himalaya. A lot of timber felling, etc., that took place in the Himalaya. So against that, there was uh, there were demonstrations, there was police firing, people were killed, and uh, in one of those rare uh, gestures of uh, acknowledging that there is an issue, the the British actually set up a different law for one part of the Himalaya, the, the Kumau Himalayan, what is now Uttarakhand, uh, where they um, the law basically enabled communities to manage the forests, so not the forest department, but the communities through something called one panchayats or forest assemblies or mm-hmm. councils. And um, so that's unique law. It actually doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. But uh, that was uh, an acknowledgement of the, the legitimacy of the movement in the Kumao Hills. And anyway, so that also was kind of an inspiration for the Chipko movement. Hmm, interesting. Um, so in the article that you sent to us, you also mentioned that uh, a large part of your formative uh, influences were uh, your visits to the Tehri Garwal region and the mining parts of Goa. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was very curious to hear a sense of what you saw in those places uh, that really inspired you to do what you do currently. As in, I mean, I am a product of the 1980s. So 1970s, uh, Goa mining or or the villages of Tehri Garwal are completely out of my scope of imagination. So it'd be lovely to hear a bit about what you saw there that uh, made you do what you're doing. So actually around the time uh, when all of this was happening, when we were in high school, we had of course heard about the Chipko movement. We were fortunate enough to meet uh, people like Sundalal Bhaguna and Chadi Prasad Bhatt uh, at you know, such meetings that we that we uh, attended in Delhi and elsewhere, and um, so we said that uh, rather than just hearing long distance and of course hearing from people like Ram Guha who was already writing about it, uh, we it would be nice to go and visit the area where the Chipko movement was active. And so in the holidays, you know, everything we were doing was basically geared around the vacations, holidays, or post school time that we had. And uh, so we organized two treks through the Tehri Garwal area where the Chipko movement uh, was known to be active. 
And so we spent, I think, 15 to 20 days on each of these two treks, uh, just walking from village to village, contacting um, village, uh, especially women who were very active in the local, uh, in the movement. And actually, that's one of the, uh, it was quite an eye-opener because firstly, of course, understanding that forests and trees were not just uh, aesthetic or ethic, I mean, uh, I mean, sort of from, from an urban perspective, the kind of views that we had about forests and trees was pretty different from what we heard from the women, which was about trees being essential to survival, being essential to economic base, being essential for their live, livestock, but also being culturally very important, that there was a sp spiritual and cultural relationship with the forest and the trees. And that there was a very strong gender dimension here, because in many cases, we found that in the villages, the men who were much more connected to the external economy were more willing to let go of the forest and allow timber felling because that's how they would earn some money. But the women absolutely were against it because for them, trees and forests were part of the domestic economy, not the commercial external economy. And so uh, all of this in those sort of two trips uh, was coming home to us. And, you know, as you can imagine, pretty steep learning curve because here's a relatively... Uh, naive uh, bunch of kids going uh, to an area with our own views of what wildlife and trees and forest is and then learning about all these things from from the grassroots from village women um at that same time also then we had heard about uh, movement against mining in goa goa had a very extensive iron ore and other kinds of mining both for use in india and also export and we knew people like uh, Claude Alvarez and others who were part of the movement uh, against that mining. So we said, okay, let's do another, let's do a trip there. And uh, there was a seminar on Goa's environment that we visit, that we went for, and then we also visited some of the mining areas. Um, and again, that was pretty uh, much of a shocker in terms of, you know, here is the government saying this is development. And there were local people and environmentalists saying this is not development, this is destruction. You can't be... Uh, destroying the forests and the land and all the mine base going into the sea and the rivers, etc. Um, I think we should also, I mean, uh, should, important also to note that we were also beginning to explore a lot of environmental issues uh, in and around Delhi. It wasn't just the Delhi Ridge Forest, that's how we kind of began, but also uh, pollution in Delhi, like the thermal power stations, uh, Indraprasth power station and uh, Badarpur power station. And we actually did a small investigation on the Badarpur power station in terms of its impacts on the adjacent village of Mularban, because all the coal dust was falling into that village and affecting their crops and their health and the health of their livestock. So we did an investigation there, released this to the press, um, helped them to mobilize a little bit of uh, opinion and voice. Um, also in 1981, I think, or it was 82, uh, there was an incident of uh, police firing in Bharatpur National Park, uh, the uh, very important reserve for birds in Rajasthan. And when the news of that firing came to us, uh, it was a shock because for us, wildlife conservation was important. We had been, a couple of us uh, had been to Bharatpur. Uh, some people had been several times. And actually, I myself got very interested in bird watching through a trip to Bharatpur. Yeah, when I was in school. And uh, so for us, it was this whole thing of well, wildlife conservation is important, but can it be at the cost of people's lives? And so we did an immediate investigation the next the day after the firing or two days after we actually, there were three of 
our members went to Bharatpur and did an investigation. We found that the firing was uh, unprovoked. Uh, it was unjustified because basically what had happened was that um, a ban had been imposed on grazing, buffalo grazing in the national park overnight. No alternatives were provided to the villagers who had been grazing in the park for generally for decades. And uh, so it was totally justified that they actually tried to force their way in because they had they actually had traditional rights there. Uh, and in the process, police and forest department opened fire and seven villagers were killed, including two or three who were killed running away. We saw the bullet wounds in the back. And for us, uh, that became kind of a trigger to ask this question of can wildlife conservation happen at the cost of human rights, um, which is what the Western model of conservation is doing. It's imposing from above, it's displacing people, evicting people from the forest, etc. And uh, that's when a lot of our uh, uh, work or thinking or perspectives on what wildlife conservation should be uh, began. So that's also early years. And then um, we, when we went to Goa, we also, and, else, and otherwise also we were in touch with the fishing, uh, the fisher folks movement, because around the same time, there was a strong movement all along our coasts against commercial trawling. These big, uh, big ships, trawler ships that were coming in from outside, including I think Norway, and they were basically scooping up all the fish, destroying the, the ocean bed. And these fishing fish communities, the traditional fishing communities, were protesting against it, both because their livelihoods were being affected, but also marine uh, ecosystems were being destroyed. And uh, so that also kind of gave us, you know, a certain sense of what was happening in the, again in the name of development. Uh, and finally, uh, in the 1982, we heard about the proposal for um, 30 big dams being made in the Narmada Valley. And by this time, I was in college. I was in Hindu college uh, in Delhi University. And one of my colleagues uh, who was from that area, he said, why don't we go to the valley and see what's happening? And so in 1983, during the summer vacation, we did a 50-day walk along the river uh, and uh, basically to try and see for ourselves what would be the implications of 30 big dams coming in that valley. Mm. And when we did that, and then in 1984, we released a report called Narmada Valley Project Development or Destruction. It was probably in that sense, a bit of a culmination of all of these other experiences for us to be able to ask this question of what really is it, uh, what really is development? Is this or is it something very different that we should be doing both to protect the environment and livelihoods of people? So yeah, these were some of the early experiences and all of these have kind of carried through with me even now in terms of uh, the balance between human rights and uh, environment and wildlife conservation, uh, the rights of people, but also the rights of nature. Um, very fundamental questions of what is development? Is it really well-being or should we be looking for very radical alternatives about which, of course, I'll talk about later. So, and of course, then the gender dimensions, the uh, class dimensions, I think caste dimensions were not so strong at that point for us. Um, and this has been a weakness in the environmental movement, but of course, more recently, they've been very strong. But uh, many, many of the other influences are things that still carry, uh, carry through with me. And, and finally, also then, because uh, I, in college, I did sociology, which is what you'd asked me originally. Mm. 
um, it was a bit easier to make the connections between environment and social issues, social dynamics, the way our society is structured, the inequalities in society, etc. So I guess when even when I was doing sociology, I was focusing much more on the environmental aspects than actually doing sociology as an academic profession, uh, academic discipline. Yeah. So she's building on, well, I think several of the comments you said. So there's, it sounds like based on your experiences, there's this skepticism of top-down governance. Some of us call it command and control kind of as an epithet. There's a skepticism about that approach that a lot of us share in the comments field. And a natural reaction to that is to say, well, let's have local self-governance. And we've seen that in some of your writings, a focus on that. And you, you acknowledge this in your writing, but I wanna ask you about it. This tendency then to view local self-governance as a kind of panacea, as the, as the solution. If, if top-down is the cause of our problems, then bottom-up, which must be the solution to all of, all of those same problems. And based on comments you just said, right, about uh, gender inequality, like one of the criticisms of a bottom-up approach is that, you know, community-based management can be, um, it can kind of be bottom-up in name only if the community becomes more an administrative artifact of the state than something that's actually existing in the world. That's been one of the critiques of that approach. And part of that criticism of kind of administrative bottom-up has been, look, communities actually aren't homogenous. There are folks with different interests in these communities. And I feel like I'm hearing that from you, particularly when you talk about the gender dynamics and you mentioned the caste system, which plays a very strong role here, but I'm not very familiar with. So the gender aspect is very interesting that and this is one of the things you mentioned that I picked up on that women and men play different roles in these forest using communities. Men are more outward focused, more extrinsically potentially motivated. And the women are more internally focused, maybe more intrinsically motivated with regards to their valuing of the forest. And when I heard that, I, I, I kind of infer that that's in large part based on their patterns of use and the gender roles that assign those patterns of use of the forest. Are you at all concerned about the kind of blue printification of bottom-up local self-governance approaches in response to these problems? Could, is it possible for the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction um, at the expense of acknowledging these local power dynamics? Because that's been a part of the discourse. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think uh, possibly in some of the early years of even our work, uh, we were tending to, um, all the word people use is romanticize local communities. Uh, I, I, I don't have problems with being romantic, but uh, to say, uh, to, to have a, a, a somewhat uh, rosy-eyed view of, of communities uh, more than should be the case. And I think over these last four decades, we have been uh, more and more careful about not falling into that kind of a trap of thinking of communities as being homogenous, nor thinking that communities by themselves will actually solve all the problems that we're talking about, all the crises that we have. Um, but let me put it this way. Um, I think what tends to happen sometimes with people who argue this 
is that they also then tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is to then uh, not acknowledge the fact that community dynamics have incredible strengths. Uh, uh, if you look at traditions in, in India, especially, but also elsewhere in the world, with our, the work we've been doing on uh, ICCAs or territories of life, which we'll talk about later, um, the, uh, the knowledge, the institutional structures, the governance mechanisms, and much else, uh, and practices uh, and worldviews um, actually tend to be much more ecologically wise than uh, anything that modern society has given us, so far at least. Um, so I think, and the community spirit, the collective working, all of that, the sort of uh, mutual aid kind of thing that we are, you know is now coming back in the form of, for instance, let's say time banking or you know, localization of, uh, of exchange. These are things that have been part of community life for forever in some senses, right? Um, so that essence, uh, that sort of crucial essence of what communities have been and how they have governed the commons uh, cannot be forgotten. Having said that, I think it would also be uh, equally problematic if one was to say that, well, then let communities do everything because of the reasons we've just been speaking about. Um, local power dynamics can, can be very problematic. Um, gender, caste, class, uh, ethnicity, age, all kinds of... Um, and they can be uh, entrenched sometimes, even, uh, you know, even more entrenched if you were to say that let's empower the communities to do whatever they want to do. Uh, the second big issue is that um, communities today are not uh, in any way, I mean, the today's context is very different. Virtually all communities are linked up in some way or the other with national and global markets, with national politics, uh, and much else, right? So uh, this tends to also influence communities in ways that, for instance, might break down community spirit or might lead to the submersion, of, uh, submergence of, uh, of local knowledge systems uh, or values uh, that they had with respect to, say, the rest of nature. And so what we find in today's context is that where uh, community empowerment is taking place in a lot of examples, there's also internal questioning. I mean, I can, like, for instance, example, which I think we've written about uh, from Central India of uh, indigenous communities, the Adivasi communities arguing for self-governance and local control over their forests, etc., is where women are also now speaking up and saying that, uh, you know, this is all, this is well, this is fine. We need to have relative autonomy from the government, but we also need to have equal voice for ourselves as women, because that is not, even though indigenous communities are much more, uh, or let's say much less unequal than others, uh, but still women were not part of the traditional decision-making processes. Uh, they had a lot of power in other things, but not in the formal decision-making processes. And so they are actually... Uh, arguing for that, and they've set up institutional processes by which they can get the capacity and the strength and the confidence to speak in the village assemblies and the federations of village assemblies, and then from there also into wider political circles. Um, the same thing is happening with, say, uh, Dalits in many parts of India, where another example that for me is most inspiring is from Telangana of 5,000 Dalit women farmers who have uh, uh, created an agricultural revolution, brought food security and food sovereignty 
into their lives by reviving the traditional agriculture by reviving their or sustaining the relationship with the earth and with seeds as a spiritual relationship but also an economic one um and uh, fighting against uh, men folk and upper castes to assert uh, this form of agriculture and their own dignity in those villages so you actually then begin to find that um given the opportunity um you you the communities don't stay uh, static right there there is change there's evolution and in the last few decades i think that evolution has also meant questioning their own internal dynamics and inequalities um here i think what's also very important at least in the many 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 examples we've been involved with or have helped to document sometimes the involvement of a civil society actor and less common but also sometimes uh, even government officials and then the policies that government brings in if you have progressive policies on say uh, women's reservation in village councils uh, that kind of thing also helps to push for this internal uh, uh, push for uh, for greater equality uh sometimes an external civil society agent or a government officer brings knowledge about certain things which the local community does not have sometimes a local community person has gone out and got educated in a in a university and has been exposed to other sorts of ideas about say gender equality etc comes back with that and starts discussing and trying to change things within the community so there are many different influences and dynamics which make this happen some purely internal some external and uh, many of them are mixed but this is happening so that no longer can we think of the two extremes which is all communities all communities are fantastic and just leave it to them or the other extreme communities are too iniquitous too many problems we can't leave it we can't have uh, community empowerment as a solution instead of these two extremes can we think of uh, hybrid situations where people are evolving to uh, uh to try and deal with these issues. Great, thank you. I have a follow-up question as well based on another um issue you mentioned in your answer to the previous question which is about this I call it a kind of a win-lose framing of human environment relationships. And that is often used or at least there's the narrative goes that there's that framing is often used to um justify top-down governance right this assumption that local human environment interactions environmental use must have a cost to the environment and i'm just wondering and there's been pushback on that also saying well in some indigenous or traditional communities the view of environmental use is use as stewardship and that by assuming this win-lose relationship we're actually kind of imposing um a western perspective and western experience or maybe also like you could say industrialized which is what led to a lot of this do how much do you agree with that pushback that the win-lose framing is a kind of external imposition or do you think we can also be overstating the potential for this when this use as stewardship paradigm well you know again i think um it's very contextual um and it is it is changing rapidly like i said earlier 
communities are no longer uh, in the situation they were in 100 years back or 50 years back in some cases even 20 years back because there has been such a, a rapid and widespread incursion of uh, national global market and national global politics that um, and 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 even in uh, very so called remote uh, i use the word remote rather uh, uh, reluctantly because i recently wrote about how uh, you know new delhi is remote from a village as as the village is remote from new delhi but we never talk about new delhi is being re- remote but anyway uh, just using it in terms of saying that okay f- very far from the sort of mainstream economy and mainstream politics but even there in those sorts of settlements there has been uh, pretty significant changes that have come in and especially now with uh, uh, communications being what they are cell phones being available everywhere etc so um local uses of the ecosystem of nature and natural resources traditionally speaking i would be very surprised if there are too many examples of destructive use irreversibly destructive use but where new technologies enter or where markets entered and uh, uh, created the opportunity for some people from that community to be able to sell resources into the national and global markets um or other such dynamics have kind of changed then yes even local communities can be unsustainable there's there's we've seen that happening all over the place um but uh this is not necessarily their own doing this is an in, in some senses an imposition or an incursion or an intervention from an outside system that is uh, that is creating this um the the sort of response to this cannot be okay this this justifies imposition of an external law which says okay we will now protect the forest uh, the forest department in india will protect that uh, forest or somebody else will come and actually protect it because the community is not able to do it that cannot be the uh, the response the response has to be uh, okay maybe some things have changed in the community let's look at its past let's look at its history let's look at its dynamics with and what has changed and let's see if we can enable the community to regain some of the earlier balances maybe in a different way in a different context uh, not exactly how it was 50 years back but in a different way so let me give you an example from um, uh, nagaland which is in northeast india in the last 50 years or so there's been significant overhunting of wildlife so you can go to uh, villages in nagaland which are fantastic forests but nothing in them no no bird calls no animals uh, nothing um and the part of the reason for this is that world war 2 onwards uh, fire guns were introduced into nagaland nagaland is also one of those areas where there's been a lot of uh, uh, conflict between local communities and the indian the indian state with a lot of army etc so because of all of this uh, there's much more presence of arms uh, of uh, fire guns rifles etc and traditionally the hunting would always happen with bow and arrow with spear it is very difficult to overhunt with uh, those sorts of technologies but to bring in the rifles and, and guns of course it's so much easier uh, to hunt much more now in a situation like that you could e- your response could either be okay uh, communities need to be moved out of critical areas and the forest department should come in and protect or the response could be that let's start a discussion and dialogue with the community to say that even if you actually want to continue hunting 
the wildlife needs to be there for you to hunt otherwise the next generation is not going to have anything interestingly in nagaland this dialogue and discussion happened within the communities themselves not from outside but basically communities themselves uh, beginning to realize that there was a problem uh, the elder saying that we always had access to these animals to hunt now they are not there anymore uh, young people beginning to ask this question where are those animals you people keep talking about we see trophies in the house but where are those animals in the forest they're not there anymore some young people also maybe have been gone out and kind of heard about conservation ethics and so on anyway so you actually now see more than 600 villages in nagaland that that have themselves imposed hunting bans uh, people wildlife sanctuaries have come up in a number of villages um, and so on right and there's very little presence of the forest department uh, over there so what we're seeing is this this churning that is happening uh, which is uh, a lot of communities right now are at this very difficult juncture of either fully integrating into national global markets and politics and losing everything or saying well even if we if as we engage with that we need to be able to revive our homes to ensure that our nature and our natural resources remain intact the same thing is happening with agriculture uh, where the integration means much more use of chemicals and hybrid seeds and gmos and so on whereas movements in many of these communities are saying no we need to actually go back to organic we need to come back to our own traditional seed diversity and respect the earth and not pump chemicals into it uh, and but of course that means having to then fight the external market uh, and the government so i think i mean that's what we're seeing in a lot of cases uh, and our role i think needs to be to enable uh, the maximum possible information to communities what is what are the implications of going down a particular pathway um, say for commercialization or the use of chemicals etc give examples of what's happened elsewhere uh, enable exchanges within communities where you know communities have already transformed into systems where they are regaining their their own uh, control but also questioning their own inequalities etc and elsewhere where that has happened to kind of have exchange programs so that people can learn from each other um and uh, uh also enable resistance where it is necessary where the external market or state is imposing itself too much so that's the kind of role that you know people like us need to play uh where we are then acknowledging that communities by themselves are not going to be able to uh manage in the in the current situation of globalization uh but uh, it also does not justify imposition of uh, top down governance systems of wildlife or agriculture okay or whatever other yeah so shish i mean you're doing a lot of different things that was one of the things that he and I were talking about before you came online was just the, the kind of range of activities and levels you seem to be engaged at could you talk to us about well part of this question is also that there's there's also this talk about burnout in the activist and practitioner space because and it and it, it relates to again this kind of blueprint panacea question i asked you earlier is is because i think when we romanticize communities we also romanticize we have this idea of, of a happily ever after story right so if an academic like me comes in i study a couple communities maybe i do it for 3 to 5 years um 
ideally I come back and I form a long lasting relationship with these communities to avoid extractive parachute research, but that often doesn't happen, right? And so when that doesn't happen um, because of lack of funding or other reasons, I think it can be easy to maintain that romanticism and think, oh, well, things were going well here. These issues were getting resolved. Um, I can move on to the next thing because things are going well in these communities. And when I've talked to other academics who have stayed in a community longer, what they, some of them have said is, look, there's never an ending. You never get to a point where everything's resolved. There's always going to be some new thing that's coming up. Um, you never fully, you know, resolve potential conflicts or maybe some uh, new person enters the community and there's issues of corruption that weren't there five years ago. And so I think we have this narrative that, that is related to the panaceas of we can get to this happily ever after story. But when you work in a space long enough, you realize that you never get there, that the work in a way is never done. And so I think because of that, that can be kind of a punishing realization for some people um, that maybe makes them feel like they're a bit on a bit of a treadmill and you're kind of, you know, the one, one step, two steps forward, one step back. And so with all that in mind, have you asked yourself kind of what keeps you going in the face of those challenges? What about you? What about your relationship to your environment, to your um, family or social groups has helped you stay on this path? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. So um, yeah, well, firstly, I think uh, this observation that there is no end point uh, that you don't, you know, you can think of utopias you're never actually going to reach utopia as even as you kind of keep going, heading towards it, um, issues come up uh, all the time. And so it is always uh, you know, what one could call evolving utopias or uh, uh, evolving solutions. And um, uh, there is absolutely no end point. But um, I think what is important is to try and actually realize where is it that the local institutional structures are now supposed to strong enough for them to be able to deal with um, challenges, to deal with shocks um, in, by themselves and not have to actually depend on uh, somebody like me or you, right? And that I think is very, very important. And uh, that, that stage could happen in five years, it could happen in 20 years, or it may never happen. Um, but how do we kind of, you know, uh, assess a situation in a way that we know, okay, this is now somewhere where suppose I'm involved, I can now take a back step because there's enough local institutional capacity to take it forward, which doesn't mean that 30 years down the line, they'll still have survived. We don't know. That is, that's something none of us can predict for anything, right? I mean, even, even powerful nation states can fall apart. So um, uh, that's one, I think, important part of this. Uh, the second thing is the reason why I think a number of us are able to kind of sustain what we're doing uh, of course, family and things like that are very important, but equally important or sometimes even more so is how much of a network of institutions, organizations, individuals, energies have, have we been able to help build up or become part of where then uh, when somebody like me, for instance, says I'm exhausted, I can't do this right now there are others who can take over, right? Um, and this is not about saying, okay, I'm going to go on a five-week vacation and then I'll be fine. 
but actually is to say that maybe that maybe it's a long term thing that you actually need maybe even a generational uh, transition um or a transition between different kinds of people uh, from urban to rural or rural to urban uh, from and from ngo to the local community itself uh, etc so there are various different kinds of transitions uh, or uh, transference of uh, of the uh, the roles we're playing that need to take place in our case uh, in my own example and in in the case of kalpavriksh what we always try to do is never go it alone uh you know try and create a, a platform where there's multiple organizations and individuals who are involved and i think that helps a lot in avoiding the kind of situation that you're talking about where suppose for some reason i need to withdraw or my organization needs to withdraw we could try and call upon another of the organizations in the network to say that can you kind of take over if the community is not already ready um or uh, within the organization itself to say that i as an individual need to take a step back can somebody else take over i don't think the ngo world has been very good at this i think we've often tried to kind of go it alone and you know become heroes uh, in ourselves and uh, that has impeded a lot of possible uh, networking to to enable the sustainability but i think i mean we we just have to keep trying more and more of it and we've uh, to create i think about seven or eight such sort of platforms and networks in the last 40 years to help sustain this some many have have lasted for many many years one or two have not lasted for other reasons um i think the other thing is that actually there's also more discussion now going on on how do we create spaces for uh dealing with exhaustion and burnout which are safe uh, spaces within the civil society structures not within our own organization more equally importantly in the network so for instance the network that i helped to create called vikalp sangam which is on alternatives uh, this discussion has been happening for some time now intensifying saying how do we as a network of 80 organizations enable uh, or reduce chances of burnout by recognizing the signs and stepping in and saying okay i'll take over because it seems you're under a lot of stress uh, that and and not to actually have to deal with it in the sort of westernized way where i am an individual i have burnout i'll go on vacation doesn't matter what happens as to and others are not concerned about me etc but actually deal with it as a collective uh, as a community spirit does that kind of respond to your Question yes, yes. Right. I mean, that was terrific. I mean, I, I, just to, to just to reflect on a few things you said, this idea of deciding when something is good enough, I think, is a, 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 it's an important skill for us to have across all kinds of contexts, right? Whether you're finishing a paper, a report, or working with a community, at some point there needs to be a, a time of kind of some amount of letting go and saying, "Okay, this is I've done what I'm going to do um, with respect to this project or whatever it is." and i think something else i feel like i heard from you is again it's it's the importance of community right we i've thought a lot about this when we're working with communities of natural resource users we're often thinking about social capital networks who's able to trust who who's able to lean on who and i think it behooves us to apply that same lens to ourselves and ask okay where is my community what social networks am i a part of and how does that influence me I certainly think about that with respect to academics um and the 
disciplinary divides, the group-based conflict that can occur that makes interdisciplinary work difficult. I think that's similar to intergroup conflict that we see, quote unquote, in the world. And I, the, the point you made about NGOs kind of going it alone, I found very interesting. There is this narrative that NGOs are often act as these boundary spanners or boundary actors connecting local communities with governments being the kind of stereotypical example of them playing this kind of connective role. So given that common stereotype of the role they play, it's, it's, it's particularly interesting to hear you say that sometimes NGOs can kind of want to go off on their own. And it, it kind of makes sense as well. I mean, the, the narrative that my brain imposes on that is, okay, if I'm part of an organization, I want to have ownership over the outcomes. And the way I do that is to have my organization be strongly tied to those outcomes and not tied to other organizations. And I, I could see that being uh, a conflict as well that you'd have to manage. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's also a conflict in terms of identity. It's a conflict in terms of funds because you know, raising funds is not so easy. So it's, it's a very competitive uh, world out there uh, for civil society, which means that, uh, that my identity, my brand has to be there. Uh, otherwise, how am I going to get the next, next uh, project funds, right? And same thing with academics, I'm sure. Uh, so, so these are challenges. I think uh, we, we just need to um, understand that uh, neither as an individual nor as an organization are we indispensable. Uh, that we actually cannot do without uh, building community within the organization, but between organizations, that the kind of forces we're up against are so powerful that as an individual or as, an individual, as a single organization, there is no way I can actually tackle those. I think the more we're able to understand that, the more we're able to understand that you have certain weaknesses and strength, I have certain weaknesses and strength, and if we get together, Maybe we can plug each other's weaknesses and synergize our strengths. Uh, this sort of realization, I think, uh, which you know, it's happening, but it needs to happen much, much more. Um, and uh, also to, I mean, you know, I don't want to bring in the issue of personal egos and dynamics and all of that. Of course, is is. We know it matters. Yet, of course, it matters, and I'm not sure there's much one can do about it, but. I think what also tends to happen sometimes is that uh, we think of uh, our, our differences as being ideological differences, whereas in fact, they might just be personal egos. Uh, and if they are truly ideological differences, and if we understand that the end goal is, let's say, justice for all of us, then having a dialogue about those ideologies can actually help resolve it. I mean, for instance, in the Indian context, there's been a traditional divide between say, Marxists and Gandhians, uh, or uh, Gandhians and feminists, or Marxists and feminists, or uh, Gandhians and Ambedkarites, that is, people who argue for the rights of uh, the communities. Um, so, uh, you know, we have always said that, look, if you actually look at the local grassroots movements, they don't necessarily make these divides. For them, if a Gandhian nonviolent tactic is what works, they'll use that. But at the same time, they'll say that Dalits are in a very bad situation. We don't believe in caste. We want uh, casteism to be completely annihilated, right? Which is the Ambedkar thing. 
and they might even bring in class as a as a thing in their own language uh, mm-hmm. so you actually find that a lot of these ideologies merge relatively easier in the grassroots movements than they do in the ngo circles and definitely in the academy and we need as ngos or academics or civil society organizations to be able to respond to that kind of fluidity at the level of the grassroots and be able to break our own uh, the boundaries that we have set up for ourselves and this is in the vikalp sangam process we've done this we've explicitly tried to do this say we very much welcome gandhians we welcome feminists we welcome marxists we welcome ambedkarites we welcome adivasi indigenous uh, peoples movements who have their own ideologies and world views let's sit and talk about how do we uh, we have differences let's explore those differences let's respect those differences let's even celebrate those differences but in so far as they don't become divisions between us uh, i think that is uh, absolutely crucial that uh, for us to be able to yeah i think that's a very important uh, observation as well because uh, i'm currently reading this book uh, called india's lady doctors by kavita rav um and um it basically is a story of six indian women who were the pioneering um female doctors in india and we're talking about the 18 1800s 1860s um that that period of time and one of the things that comes out quite strongly is just the fact that certain groups have a, a a little more privilege uh, even when you have progressive talk about women's emancipation liberation education and so on people of lower castes had a slightly different trajectory more intense struggles to access that same education uh, and go against societal bonds so i think it was very i mean i just got kind of resonated with what you were saying there uh, but uh, ashish just talking about uh, this idea of development that you critique uh in in some of your work you've also talked about development as violence um and development uh as we know at the mainstream uh development the focus on sustainability development goals and so on my reading of that was that you're critiquing certain forms of development as is mainstream uh western uh neo colonial neo uh what patriarchal whatever uh that kind of stuff and i also link that to your idea of the eco swaraja that you uh, that you talk about uh, in another one of your work and i was just wondering if you could sort of uh, a talk about what is it about mainstream forms of development that you are critical about and really how how does the eco swaraja concept come in um, and maybe it's links later on to degrowth uh, and uh, the philosophies there sure um Just, uh, I just remembered one thing from the previous question. I'll just uh, deal with that and then come back to your question. Uh, I think the issue of branding. Uh, I think because uh, Michael, you also kind of talked about you know the need for organizations to be able to, uh, in some sense, sort of, sort of showcase themselves. Uh, we've had this uh, struggle uh, quite a lot in India. Uh, I mean, I'm I've been on the board of Greenpeace India, for instance. I used to be on the board of Greenpeace International also. And uh, as you know, Greenpeace is one of those organizations that you know. is at the forefront and because of its name and its history and its brand it kind of gets projected even if there might be another 10 organizations doing uh, part of the campaign and so our struggle here has been to kind of uh, you know bring much more of a sensibility and this is something that we've done also of course with culpabilization and any other organizations uh, the sensibility that sometimes or in fact often if if the end goal we want is to win a particular campaign 
it might be more effective for us not to have our name there or be in the back uh, back benchers right and to have a, a more like a coalition as being the name right even if it's been set up by culture or it's been set up by greenpeace doesn't matter let that coalition name be there and all of us are sort of in that sense uh, in the back now that kind of uh, the balance of needing to have your organizational name brand there and needing to also create a system in which everybody feels included involved and doesn't feel sidelined because there's some big organization name or big individuals name there um, is another very important challenge i think that we need to take more and more and more uh, and to say that okay are we finally in a situation where let's say vikalp sangha the network that we helped to create uh, doesn't get identified with any organization people say ovikal oh, song yeah yeah we know that they're working on radical alternatives not quite sure leading that i don't know which organization is behind it but i know the vikal sangam is doing some fantastic work you know that's the kind of thing we need to kind of move towards and of course it's not easy um development is violence yeah so i think you know uh, as i mentioned in the first uh, first few minutes about uh, our work on uh, on looking at mining and then deforestation and then the narmada projects and and so on let us more and more to this question of what really is development is what is happening right now in the name of or since the last 50 years let's say in india in the name of development is it really uh, development or not so in those initial years we were saying this is not development we need a different kind of development right so and of course globally we know that development came in and then in india we use inclusive development new brands are being created all the time but quite frankly in the last uh, 10 15 years i've uh, sort of i've got convinced that it's not a particular brand of development or economic growth kind of thing it is development per se that's a problem as an ideology because what is development you know if you look at it it is the opposite of envelopment envelopment means to close like writing a letter put it in an envelope and send it which most of us don't do anymore uh development is opening up it is the opening up of opportunities opening up of uh, for instance it i think probably originally was used uh, for say plants uh, you know seed in the ground seed becomes a sapling sapling becomes a you know bush which then becomes a tree etc and uh, the or the uh, human uh, embryo but then in the last 50 to 60 years development in the economic context which is what we are using it mostly now has meant a continuous opening up and increase in material and energy flows a non ending an unending increase in material flows and energy flows now that we know now is impossible uh, it, it not i mean it, it will lead to ecological collapse because we do have Uh, ecological boundaries which we cannot cross or should not be crossing and in that sense to my mind the word development itself is a problem so it's not about certain forms of development but development itself right and that's why uh, the latest book we did um, pluriverse the post development dictionary is to argue that we need notions of well being to replace development not replacing development with sustainable development inclusive development i think sustainable development is a oxymoron it's a contradictory terms uh but to say we need well being that could be or different words can be used in different parts of the world uh and that has to be post development post growth etc 
So if we think of development, which in all countries of the world is also essentially predicated on economic growth, except for uh, Bhutan, which also doesn't use development, by the way, they use this gross national happiness. Um, if, if, we, uh, if we assume that, that, that development has to happen in order to get people out of poverty and to provide livelihoods and jobs, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then we are on a ecologically suicidal mission and also as uh, socially extremely uh, iniquitous, unequal. We know that also now with so much data that is coming of how inequality has increased as a result of the same models of development across the world. Um, so if that is the case, then what are the uh, well-being approaches that could be viable alternatives to development, right? And that's where uh, the work we've been doing in the last few years, looking at what people's own approaches are. So for instance, if the 5,000 Dalit women farmers that I mentioned earlier of the Deccan Development Society in Telangana have achieved food security and food sovereignty, They've not done it through development and economic growth pathways. They've done it by actually trying to recreate, revive, and uh, create new forms of community organization, of women's mobilization, which has brought uh, agricultural uh, revolution into their lives. It has nothing to do with thinking of economic growth and development at all. right? And one can think of hundreds of such examples around the world. So for them, the motivation was what will create enough food for us? What will create enough food for our live, livestock? What will sustain the earth, which is so precious for us? It is Mother Earth. It's not just an economic resource. And how do we control all of this? So that corporations and governments are not the ones in control uh, and whom then we become dependent on. So these were the sorts of motivations. It's a very different motivation from the developmentalist mindset and or the economic growth mindset, right? Uh, and this is where we then also question people who say that, okay, but we can have green growth or we can have sustainable development. They're saying, why go in that direction where you're trying to do the impossible when in fact these other approaches are available? Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that uh, the Deccan Development Society model needs to be upscaled so that it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger or replicated everywhere in India or everywhere in the world? No. It means we learn the lessons of what they were doing. We learn the ethics and the principles, the principle of working with the earth and respecting the earth, the principle of working with seeds and thinking of seeds as being spiritual uh, parts of our lives, the principle of working with each other, all the women working as a collective, right? principle of exchanging knowledge and seeds and ideas, et cetera, not holding them in private, not creating intellectual property rights over seeds and knowledge. These principles can then be uh, applied elsewhere in another ecological context or another social cultural context with whatever modifications are necessary. So it's not replicating, nor is it about DDS itself becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, which is the corporate model or the government model, but about what I call outscaling, which is learning those things creating the same kind of thing somewhere else in its own context, and then networking, creating the networks which then create that macro scale. So you have a DDS here, you have a Northeast network in, in Nagaland, etc. You have uh, other networks elsewhere, creating, let's say, a national level network of sustainable, small farmer-based, biologically diverse local agroecology, which becomes the macro 
uh, thing and influences policy and creates many more such uh, opportunities uh, for farmers all over the country. Uh, so that is what uh, we've called Eco Swaraj. Now, the, the notion of Swaraj uh, is a very old Indian uh, word, uh, but it was revived by Gandhi in the independence struggle. Uh, but he was also very clear to say that Swaraj is not just about, so Swaraj means self-rule, okay, very poor English translation, but let's say self-rule. Um, but he was very clear to say that it's not about India's independence from British colonial power. That is an important thing, of course. But even more importantly, it is about each individual and each community and collective being autonomous, being free, asserting freedom, asserting self-determination, asserting dignity, and all of that. But, and this is very, very important, but, and this is how it's kind of different from the modern Western liberal democracy. Also being responsible towards other people's Swaraj, which means my lifestyle and my consumption patterns and my ways of living and my economy cannot be impinging on somebody else's, right? Which necessarily means I have to live a life of restraint. My community has to live a life of restraint, which doesn't mean deprivation but restraint, not over-consuming, not taking somebody else's resources, snatching them away, etc. So this thing of freedom with responsibility is a very crucial part of, of Swaraj. And we've extended it to say eco-Swaraj just to bring in the notion that responsibility is not just towards other people and communities, human communities, but also all life. So let's also be responsible towards the earth and all other species because they deserve to be thriving on the earth as much as we do. So that's basically uh, the notion. Yeah, so I have a, I, have a, I mean, a probably slightly uh, controversial question here. Um, but I mean, when we talk about concepts such as these that are taken from ancient or uh, older uh, texts uh, of our culture and reviving them in whichever sense that we are using, there is also danger of it being misappropriated. Say, for example, how our current government is doing with a whole lot of Hindutva stuff. Um, and I'm just, I mean, there are dangers, inherent dangers there as well, right? I mean, uh, it's not like communities are naturally egalitarian. There is a whole lot of patriarchy involved. There's, um, in fact, we are one of the most patriarchal communities there is, uh, societies there is uh, as well. Um, but also, I mean, it could be misappropriated by state machinery. It could be misappropriated by a whole lot of other communities um, to do things that we are not really looking for in this in this alternative imagining of what, uh, well, for my vocabulary, development should look like. Um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are. I mean, power dynamics, there's a whole lot of things going on. And I mean, my biggest fear really is the present way the country is uh, moving towards in terms of more fascist approaches towards uh, people. I don't know. I mean, if I mean, this is for conversation because if you want to edit out this question, I'm more than willing to do it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that's a very important question, and I have, I'm very happy to deal with it because I've written about this also uh, and spoken about it. So, uh, firstly, of course, just to uh, deal with the issue of local power dynamics, uh, patriarchy, casteism, etc. That's what we dealt with earlier, right? So that is not to be accepted. 
and i will bring in uh, towards the end so remind me if i forget uh, something we use called the flower of transformation which looks at multiple different kinds of transformation in all these different spheres right to make sure that where uh, that there's progressive change happening in all spheres not just in ecology or not just in politics or not just in economy uh, but i'll come back to that so uh, I'm assuming that we've kind of dealt with that already, but we can come back to it again if you want in terms of, you know, how uh, Swaraj can uh, sometimes be uh, problematic in terms of, say, patriarchy and, and casteism. Though, if you actually look at the notion of Swaraj, if the notion of Swaraj includes individual freedom and self self-rule and dignity, then there is no space for patriarchy and casteism in it, right? Um, so how to practice Ideally, it is a different yes. issue, yeah. but yeah. at least, uh, yeah, of course, but I mean, all notions are, and cosmologies and worldviews constitution of india is is an ideal thing right so uh, but we need these ideals to say okay where do we try and head towards uh, otherwise it's chaos um so that's one thing the misappropriation thing is a very very real uh, thing it is happening all the time swaraj has been misappropriated by many people in government i mean um, i think the delhi government uh, the delhi chief minister uses it quite often there's many who do and they have their own meanings for it but this is true for virtually all alternative cosmovisions. If you look at Boinvivir uh, in South America, uh, governments there have appropriated saying, of course, we're doing Boinvivir. Our development model is all based on Boinvivir, which is nonsense. It is not. It is not based on Boinvivir is about, say, living well, living well with each other and with nature. Uh, or Ubuntu in Southern Africa. Or many, many others where that appropriation has, uh, has happened. Even the term sustainability has been appropriated. Uh, you know, inherently, it could be a good term, but it has been appropriated everywhere, in, including in the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so, so that danger is very much there. Uh, and we have to be constantly alive to that danger. Now, we have two options. Either we say that these notions and terms are uh, possible to misappropriate, so let's abandon them and keep finding, keep hunting for new terms until that also gets appropriated and then you start hunting for new ones. Or we say that, no, let's assert that this is a term that is ours and we, this is what it means, right? Um, and rescue these terms. Now, if Indian traditions, the good part of the Indian traditions have been uh, appropriated by the Hindutva Brigade here, or say the good part of Islamic traditions by uh, the, uh, the hardline uh, uh, Muslim clergy in Pakistan or whatever, you know, depending on where in the world you are, there is this kind of appropriation of uh, spiritual traditions also taking place. Um, either we say, well, we'll have to abandon them, or we say, no, we rescue them. That we are also Hindus, but we believe that Hinduism is about this and not about what you guys are talking about, right? Um, so the same thing has to happen with notions like Swaraj and Boinvivir and Ubuntu and so on, uh, or with even with something like, say, sustainability. Or let's say resilience, another term that is used a lot, Okay, resilience. Now, the resilience can, uh, to my mind, is actually a good term where we're talking about how communities or nature can be resilient in the face of shocks. Um, but it also sometimes gets uh, misused in that, uh, you know, let blacks and Dalits and all of them remain suppressed, but they should be resilient in the face of suppression, which means they should keep surviving in some way rather than asserting themselves. You know? So again, do we then say, let's abandon the word resilience or do we rescue it and say, no, this is actually the progressive form of, uh, of the word. Uh, I wrote two recent articles on words and how words get uh, corrupted and misappropriated. Let's take school, 
School comes from the original Greek word called skole or eskole, which meant learning with leisure. Now, as we know in India, 95% of schools are prisons. Nothing to do with learning with leisure. There's virtually no learning and there's definitely no leisure, right? Um, so do we then say that we'll have to abandon school and think of some other word? Or do we say, no, actually the original meaning was something very different. Let's transform our educational institutions to mean actually that. Um, yeah, so I, that's how I would actually put it, to assert where we think that a term or a word is still very important to actually assert its the meaning as we think it should be, and then to show practice on the ground. Uh, so we, 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 that's why for us, uh, the website we have called Vikalp Sangam, where there's 1800 stories of positive transformation, we keep pointing to those stories and say, the central Indian Adivasi community about which I spoke, uh, where they are asserting their local control over forests and land and the commons and asserting their uh, identity, cultural identity, etc., cetera, um, is what Swaraj is, mm -hmm. not what you guys in government are talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just, okay, so now that we've been talking about Vikalt Sangam and Kalpavriksh, uh, maybe it's a good time to just get into a bit of what you do with Kalpavriksh and Vikalt Sangam. And maybe also how Pluriverse emerged from some of those alternatives that you were talking about, the book uh, Pluriverse. Sure. So I think, uh, you know, for all these decades that we've been working, um, we've kind of um, dealt somewhat peripherally with the whole notion of alternatives, which is to say, what what is a radical alternative to, say, uh, development, economic growth, uh, patriarchy, casteism, etc. Um, but we haven't really squarely addressed it. So we've done it a little bit, say, for instance, in the conservation scenario, not a little bit, we've done quite a lot in the conservation scenario where we're saying community-led conservation, ICCAs, territories of life, are the alternative to top-down protected area governance models, right? Uh, but we haven't done it holistically, trying to look at all sectors of life. So in 2012, when uh, as my colleague Asim Srivastava and I wrote this book called Turning the Earth, uh, the, global, uh, the Making of Global India, um, we devoted two-thirds of the book to the problems with economic globalization in India, but then also one-third of the book was looking at what are the alternatives that are emerging from the ground. That's where the term radical ecological democracy and eco-swaraj also emerged. Um, and, uh, but then at that point, I kind of felt that instead of just doing a book or occasionally talking about it and writing about it, we need to think of a much more systematic process in which these alternatives are brought into um, you know, much wider recognition and are connected with each other uh, and are documented and outreach happens, etc. So in 2014, we started this process called Vikalp Sangam. Sangam, as we know, is a confluence and in India, confluence of two rivers has always been a sacred, a holy spot. Um, so this was basically about a Sangam of ideas, of initiatives, of worldviews, of practices uh, where radical alternatives are taking place. Um, and to learn from each other, to share experiences, to build more collaborations, to create more of a critical mass for policy shifts uh, or for resistance against the forces uh, that are bearing down on, on us. Um, and uh, collective visioning of what kind of society we want. Okay, so it's trying to combine the practice on the ground where these communities are doing what they're doing with their own cosmovisions, worldviews, ideas, perspectives, 
and bringing that together into can we actually think of collective uh, dreams of where we want India to be, right? Or where we want our community to be and then where we want India to be and then where we want the, the world to be. So that's the process uh, that we began. Vikalp Sangam means alternatives, confluences. Uh, it has, uh, it's, a, it's a platform, it's not an organization, it's a process. Uh, we deliberately have kept it uh, unregistered, uh, relatively informal, but because of course it needs to have some level of you know, thought and planning and so on, we have uh, uh, what's called a core group, which is about 80, right now about 80 organizations and networks around India working on various different things because another very important part of the objectives of this is to have people talking to each other across sectors. You know, you might be working, you might be a feminist, I might be a ecological conservationist, or somebody else might be an alternative learning and education person, whatever. And uh, the opportunities for us to talk to each other, to dialogue, to learn from each other, to plug each other's weaknesses, there aren't enough such opportunities. So we want Vikalp Sangam to be actually explicitly uh, a space where this kind of cross-sectoral, cross-geographic, cross-cultural learning and dialogue and exchange takes place. Uh, so that's what it is. We do um, we do physical sanghams, which is people meet for three, four, five days on particular themes or in, for a particular region, uh, state or a region of the country to, to talk about all this, to show each other's uh, experiences, have like a festival kind of a thing or demonstrations of alternative practices. Um, and uh, uh, apart from that, uh, also document and put up uh, on the website or put out into the media stories of where these transformations are taking place. That's what I said, the website right now has, I think, about 1,800 such stories. And uh, all, <laughs> yeah, it's now being used a lot in universities and, uh, and schools. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm glad that's happening. Um, to actually encourage more documentation, if possible, by the people themselves in their own language through writing or videos or audio or whatever mediums are available. Um, and um, uh, to uh, uh, now, of course, in the last couple of years, also a lot of digital space use, webinars and things like that, so that we don't have to necessarily physically be together, uh, et cetera. So, I mean, these are the sorts, and then advocacy. So where we feel that there's a particular issue that all these 80 organizations need to take up together like a threat to a particular local initiative or a national level policy that needs to be commented on, then we take that up also. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, I think we are nearing the one and a half hours that we've allotted for this uh, interview. So um, I think even though there are probably a whole lot of things I'd like to follow up on that, I think maybe we'll uh, wrap it up. I just have one last question for you. Uh, is there something that uh, you'd like to talk about that we've not touched upon during this uh, uh, conversation, maybe? It could be lots, but I think one thing that uh, maybe I should also mention is that, uh, you know, I, I don't think that India and alternatives in India can go it alone. We are in a global world. And so it's very, very important that we are also relating to what's happening in other countries, learning from them, uh, telling them what we're doing so they can learn from us. Um, and actually, as we struggle against economic globalization, we should be advocating even more in the cultural globalization and learning from each other, right? And so um, out of Vikalp Sangam in India and similar processes in, uh, especially in Mexico and Colombia called Crianza Mutua and some others in other parts of the world, we set up uh, in 2019, the global tapestry of alternatives. 
So the idea is to weave together these radical alternative networks in different parts of the world, also to then become more of a global critical mass and be able to also then help with, uh, you know, connecting with resistance movements um, and, uh, you know, aiding uh, groups that are resisting something, but also wanting to think that once we have resisted, then what is the kind of prefigurative ways of thinking of what are, what's our own alternative? What do we want to propose? When we're saying no, we also are saying yes to something. So that's uh, maybe just to mention that at the end, that there's also a very, very important need to do this much more globally. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I think uh, with that, we'd probably end this conversation. Unless Michael, do you have any comments at the end? I don't know, this has been great. I mean, I, as, as you said, as she should be, if we talk for 10 minutes, we could talk for three more hours. <laughs> so, but it's been really fascinating. I appreciate your time and attention and thoughts. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. today. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes as well as a blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons.